Namo etasa bhagavatu arahatua samasambuddhasa Namo etasa bhagavatu arahatua samasambuddhasa Namo etasa bhagavatu arahatua samasambuddhasa Putang damang sangang namasami Here we still are, and meeting with people and getting a little bit more sense of what's happening in the practice. Um, there's a kind of a, a natural um, evolution of sorts. It takes a couple days for people to set in, and then um, there's a little bit of, of a variety of things that happen after that, and then usually the the, um, the barrel, one dips into the barrel. And when dipping into the barrel, there's a whole variety of things that usually one can feel or experience or see or come to, to know more about. And for many people, they have various different expressions. Uh, and some of the classic expressions is around the, the theme of the hindrances. So in my own um, personal experience in practice and also in watching people in their practice, there's this... Um, Quite a, uh, it's exquisite, really, uh, watching people come to terms with what's there and finding the resources and the commitment to stay present, even though the territory sometimes can be challenging or uh, confusing or unsettling. And yet I think uh, it's quite likely that intuitively or consciously on some level or another that's the reason why we come to practice because we understand that all of that stuff is actually operating within us and if we don't look at it and handle it in a skillful way then it ends up um, being a force that governs our lives or directs our lives in ways that maybe isn't so skillful so the the stuff that we find challenging sometimes is the is the kind of the core of of, of the work that we can do in opening up to a new way of being, finding new levels of freedom and new levels of of uh, peace in our lives in the way that we navigate the stuff which we're familiar with. So the classically, the, the depiction of the hindrances it consists of the five hindrances, and they include anger, desire, restlessness, sloth and torpor, and doubt. And uh, with each of these things, there's many different facets of what's needed in order to work with them and understand them. And and each of us is going to have slightly different conditioning around it. So, for example, with, with anger, it's helpful to see that one acts on anger in relationship with another person that it's harmful. So it's really helpful before we start the conversation that there's a kind of common agreement, understanding, that when we dump, that that's not okay. That that's that's harmful. It's harmful to the other person, and and it's also harmful to us. Because we usually 
we usually feel really um, we don't we feel we feel regretful about that. So when we're looking at anger or we're dealing with that, then it's helpful to have some kind of a clarity about well, what's this? What's the parameters of the behavior that we're talking about? So the parameters of the behavior have to do with um, not engaging in this energy directly in relationship to another person, either with speech or with action. When we have that as a parameter, then we can start working with opening it up and looking at it and seeing how it affects us and what are what are useful ways of 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 handling it. And again, you know, for different people, there's going to be a different kinds of conditioning that needs to be worked with. Um, you know, one of the things that um, One of the classic ways of dealing with anger is with loving kindness, with metta. And so one will bring, uh, instead of thoughts of harm, one will bring thoughts of kindness or non-harm uh, to the person or to the individual that one is dealing with. And so it's not like one's using this metta as a, as a marshmallow goo that one spreads on top of life and on top of anger. It's not. It's not like that. What one's doing is is deliberately bringing to mind the qualities of the person or the situation where there genuinely is a sense of affection and tenderness and allowing that to become uh, the predominant uh, place where one attention is resting. And uh, certainly um, what we found living in community is any time that there was a conflict, if we were able to stay in empathetic resonance with each other, if we were able to keep the the connection present, then it meant that our skillfulness increased just enormously in our ability to negotiate the conflict because we were still in relationship with the person and it helped enormously. With sometimes with anger, one of the ways that you can have clarity around it or cut through it is bring uh, the contemplation of death. And so if we consider that each of us dies and that none of us know when we will die, sometimes that reflection can be sufficiently sobering to allow us to cut through the anger that's, uh, that's gripped, that's holding. Because we, we, we can see that, you know, in contrast with the kind of inevitability of our own death, this often is just absolutely not worth holding on to, you know, or the consequence of their inevitable death. You know, it's just like you don't hold on to that. And in our monastery situation, there was a, it's quite a, quite a happening, really. One of the abbots had been abbot for a long time. He was one of the founding abbots of one of the monasteries, and and basically what happened was he he left, he disrobed, and he did it without saying it goodbye to anybody, you know. And not only was he a founding abbot, but he'd been a monk for 20 years. And people just were like, you know what? You know, this is the spiritual director of this community, and he disrobes and leaves and doesn't say goodbye to anybody, not to anybody, you know. And you can just imagine the kind of unsettledness that was in the community and how long it took for people to recover. And, 
you know, be, people were so shooken up that they didn't come to the monastery, and because they didn't come to the monastery, there wasn't food, and so the Anagarikas were were out in the garden cutting nettles because there were no fresh vegetables to eat, and that went on for months. You know, they were cutting nettles and picking the the berry off the trees because there just wasn't people. There was no food. Well, this story is a complicated story, and I don't need to go into all the details of it. There are lots of reasons why he left like that, and part of that had to do with the dysfunction of our own community. And so the fact that he left that that way opened up some of our own dysfunction. We were able to look at it and deal with things in a bit of better way. But uh, not long afterwards, you know, it became apparent that he had a he had a terminal brain tumor. And it was really interesting to see that in this situation there was such a phenomenal level of unsettledness. But when they found out that he was dying, it shifted very quickly. You know, it's like, you know, you just can't hold on to the same old thing when you know that somebody's time is really limited. And his time was really limited. So it was a, it was a poignant kind of illustration of that. Now, I've spoken a little bit about um, the fact that, you know, for myself, anger is, is uh, I've got terrible conditioning around it, you know, and I tend to bottle it up and turn it into a bit of a pretzel, and I've got major suppressive mechanisms around it. So for somebody who's got conditioning like I have, you know, before I can actually resolve it, I need to actually accept the fact that this is what I'm feeling. And so I've had to to create mechanisms where I can give myself permission for feeling angry because the conditioning that I had was such that I was absolutely terrified to feel angry. It felt like that was the worst possible thing. So, you know, I'd stuff it and bottle it and then it would kind of explode, you know. So I had, there was the black box and then the explosion and there was no mechanisms of seeing what were the cause and effect relationship that got from one to the other. (laughs) You know, so that as I began to get a little bit more sensitive of my my own internal mechanisms, and then I began to see that I actually had this weird conditioning, then I began to realize that I need to develop skillful means just in order that I could feel angry, and that I've got all kinds of things. And part of this was because of, of stuff that happened in my early childhood. Usually what I needed to do was to be relating to myself as if I was very young. So, like... Like two, you know. So I'd I'd take myself on a walk and sing myself angry bear songs, you know. And and somehow, you know, if I if I did that, then 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 I could get it that it, both I was angry and that it was okay to be angry. And once I got both of those things, then then the resources that I have as a as a practitioner with many years could come into operation. But before that, they weren't operating. It was not operating. So part of my own skill has been learning how to recognize where I'm at and do things which are appropriate. And that is also very humbling, you know. It's just really humbling to be walking and then turn a corner and realize you're two. (laughs) 
mean, for me, it happens enough of the time where it doesn't scare me or freak me out. It's like I know. And so, you know, well, with the two-year-old, you know, you take them by the hand and you talk to them and you talk to the bunnies and you talk to the birds and you make noises. And, you know, two-year-olds get it. They really do. And then once they get it, then the whole rest of the system can come into some kind of equilibrium. So part of my own intelligence in working with my own emotional responses has been learning to be enormously sensitive to where I'm actually at. And where I'm actually at can be a whole huge range of places, you know? And the more I'm clear about where I'm at, then the more I'm able to respond in a way which is skillful. So with a two-year-old, you don't sit them on a cushion and tell them to be quiet, be by themselves, not to talk to anybody, and sort it out. You just don't do that with somebody who's two. Nobody would. Nobody would do that. And yet, you know, that's what I did to myself. You know, sit on the cushion, shut up, don't talk to anybody, sort it out. not very kind (laughs) and it's also not very productive because it's like I was totally out of my own capacity to deal with it so when I could connect what was happening and then respond appropriately then it was very quick it would shift very quickly so part of our own learning is actually learning our own kind of habits and responses and mechanisms around it and being appropriate to that and so again we're completely out of the idea of how we're supposed to be you know so the idea is, is that once you become an adult, therefore you will always be an adult, is a false notion. That's an idea. It's not a reality. So we need to be responsive to where we're actually at and what's actually happening and what age we're actually living this stuff through. So my mechanisms were suppressive and, and not to let it into conscious awareness. But other people have the other mechanism, which is as soon as they feel angry, they want to dump you know, so it's like there's an initial feeling, and the first thing is just to get it out of my system, and it doesn't matter who or how or when or where or what, just get it out. You know, then you have these people with these phenomenally sharp tongues. <laughs> Where'd that come from? <laughs> you know, or some people, it's like they become very, you know, very reptilian. It's like they lose all kinds of cognitive thinking, and they're just like, whoa, what? <laughs> And so, you know, it doesn't matter what it is. It's just what's needed is is that a person needs to recognize their own patterning and begin to get some kind of sensitivity around that. So if your patterning is to kind of dump and to become very reptilian, not be able to think or cognize or anything, then with a person who's like that, they need a big, wide open space where they're not going to hurt themselves or hurt anybody and let themselves settle down until they can begin to figure out what's going on, and then start to process it. So the people who dump need to have support to contain it and hold it until they have more um, skill and a little bit more space, not so much heat, to then speak in a way which is not so destructive or act in a way which is not so destructive. Mm. With anger, you know it's often really helpful to look at, well, what's underneath it? What's actually needing attention here? And sometimes we get angry because there's something that actually genuinely needs attention. 
And so if a person is transgressing your boundaries or if there's been some kind of a, a disruption of trust or faith or there's some kind of violence that one's on the receiving end of it, anger is a healthy response. Even though it's not healthy to act on it, it's a healthy response. And so part of my own kind of learning about anger and part of the way that I could begin to tolerate it was to recognize that anger by itself is not bad. It's what we do with it. And so, you know, this the skillful component of anger is, is that it can be protective. That's different than hatred. Hatred, there's absolutely nothing in hatred which is skillful. There's nothing. It's totally destructive. But anger has a protective component in it, and that protective component in it can actually be um, brought to the surface, and then one can use that in order to do things in a way which is more congruent with your own values. The next one is desire. And so again, with looking at the 32-part meditation, the whole asuba practice is a kind of classic response to desire. Look at the unbeautiful qualities or characteristics of what one is desiring. Yeah. So, and then I was saying that, you know, well, well, you've got to be a little bit careful because, you know, it's not, it's not necessarily as it appears, you know. So, you know, for I was saying in my own personal circumstances, I could dismantle bodies till the cows come home, but it doesn't usually touch sexual desire because for me, sexual desire is not connected to attraction to bodies. It's a, it comes with a, a longing for emotional intimacy. So for me, the asuba, for me, is to look at the impermanent nature of intimacy. You know? It's to look at exactly where I'm stuck and to see the qualities about it which are not permanent, which are not lasting, which are not uh, ultimately satisfying in order for me to get a little bit more spaciousness around it. Fundamental in the exploration of desire is that one understands or needs to understand that by following one's desire, there will be gratification, but there's also danger. And the danger is, is, is that one gets seduced by what one is gratifying one's desire with. And so along with the gratification and the danger, there can be a feeling or a sense of an escape, the way to work with this in a way where it's not the same old thing around and around and around. And that's why the whole principle of renunciation is a useful principle, not because there's something goody-goody about doing without, but because when one's not constantly engaging the circle, there's a lot less energy in having to negotiate all of that. So renunciation is not just for, you know, monastics. It's the willingness to turn one's attention away from gratifying one's desire. That's its principle. And then to the degree that we use it will then be up to our commitment and our level of uh, precepts that we're taking. You know. So one of the things that can happen with desire is we can replace our desire or gratification with, a, with an object that, that is less harmful. 
So, for example, you know, in, in one of the day-longs that I did a little while ago, um, somebody was sharing about the fact that they felt badly because, you know, they were in a recovery program and they noticed that they just switched their addiction from substances to food. And And I said, you know, back off, mate, you know, because basically what you're doing is really skillful because substances actually, you know, it rots your brains and your blood and your organs and food... You know, there's problems with being overweight, but it's not nearly as destructive as what can happen with substances. So he was feeling bad because he thought that if he just relinquished substances, he should relinquish desire altogether. And that's too much to ask in one go. So sometimes we can deliberately substitute one kind of gratification with a less harmful kind of gratification. And that is a skillful way of, of shifting. But obviously, if we're not dealing with the element of desire or addiction, then it's going to also have unskillful effects, though they will be less. You know, so we can see that, and you can see that you know, people can become addicted to exercise or addicted to all kinds of things which on some level have a wholesome component to them. But because there's an addiction component... It's driving them rather than they're using it in a way which is actually beneficial. And as a result of that, there'll be a certain amount of suffering that comes with that. It's very natural that when desire is frustrated, it leads to irritation. I mean, it's like, it's like math. You know, and one of the principles of a monastery is it's absolutely set up to frustrate desire. I mean, it's designed specifically for that purpose. And so it was not too surprising on one hand that there are a lot of grumpy people. (laughs) And so, you know, each of us have to deal with our own grumpiness in our own ways. And it was interesting to see, you know, the way we would do that. And so, you know... uh, in a, in a monastery situation, in a celibate situation, it's taboo to break one's precepts around sexuality. But for some reason, it wasn't taboo to, to get angry at people. <laughs> so we were pretty good at getting angry, but we, we were actually pretty careful most of the time about not transgressing our precepts around celibacy. But then as we got more skillful, we realized, well, it's actually not helpful just to transmute one negative force into another negative force, even if the other negative force is less of a taboo. And so it actually is useful to work with it. So with this, as well as with anger, there's the sense that, well, this can be transmuted. These forces can be transmuted. And so, you know, we always used to laugh that, you know, the monasteries, there was no end of hard work to do. No end of hard work to do. And the lads, they love their chainsaw. I tell you, there's nothing quite like seeing a bunch of monks walking with their chainsaws, you know. (laughs) And one very senior and very highly respected monk said, never underestimate a monk with his chainsaw. (laughs) So, you know, hard physical work is one way. And the sisters found another way, because for us, if we would work to the way the men did, our bodies would get wrecked. I mean, we just didn't have it the way they had it to work like that. So our bodies just didn't do physical work quite in the same way theirs did. It didn't have the same effect. But for us, we could do devotion. 
So, you know, we could transmute this energy through devotion. And so, you know, for us, you know, we had shrines and we would make ceremonies and we would do bowing and we would have pujas and we would do all kinds of things. And that would be a way for us that would work. Chanting, you know, it's a good way. And so, you know, also, um, you know, in the Theravada tradition, we do these, these bows from the sitting position. You know, from the Korean tradition, they stand. And then from the Tibetan tradition, they do full body bows, just full body bows. And those are wonderful because your whole body is engaged. And so, you know, I remember being up at three o'clock in the morning, just, you know, and just walking around the stupa, chanting at the top of my lungs and bowing until I just wore myself out, you know. It's very skillful, you know, very, very skillful. So it's like one gathers in all of this energy and then offers it up. And just that's, you know, just offering it up, offering it up, and just see what happens. And so it's a lovely way of transforming and transmuting energy, which can have otherwise uh, expressions which are not so helpful, not so skillful. Desire is one of the third uh, of the of the hindrances. I'm sorry, restlessness is one of the third of the hindrances. And, you know, it's interesting because, again, you know, in different contexts we have different kinds of, of, of sensitivities or sensibilities around this stuff. In our culture, we tend to think with restlessness the way to resolve it is to indulge it, you know, to do whatever you feel like. Ajahn Chah used to take his monks when they were restless and stick them in a tin roof hut and wrap them in hot blankets and have them sit it out, sweat it out, you know. He cranked up the fire, you know, that was his specialty. You know, if you were suffering in one way, he would make sure to make it ten times worse. <laughs> and in doing that, it's like, it's so miserable. It's like you've got to figure out something quick, otherwise you're dead, you know. It's just like so miserable, you've got to figure it out. So that's the way he would deal with the monks. You know, in fact, when people would ask him how he taught, he said torture. <laughs> You know, so he'd nail people's numbers and then rub their nose in it until they just totally understood the nature of that energy and how to work with their mind so that their mind would relax. We like to mollycoddle ourselves, you know. That's the culture that we come from, a mollycoddle culture. But, you know, there's different ways and different capacities. So obviously patience is helpful. So if you take you know, Ajahn Chah and take off a few layers of fire, you know, basically what he's asking about is to endure restlessness with patience, you know. Um, in terms of bringing the seven factors of enlightenment, the qualities of concentration and equanimity and uh, tranquility, these are all the factors of enlightenment which are antidotes to restlessness. So you can use the factors of enlightenment also as medicinal antidotes to certain qualities of mind. So with restlessness, we would not want to spend more time with energy and with uh, investigation of dhammas. So those two qualities, uh, seven factors of enlightenment, one would refrain from. 
And then also, you know, it sometimes is just helpful to see, well, what's underlying the restlessness? You know, because with any of these things, anger, desire, restlessness, and the next one as well, sloth and torpor, sometimes there's a, a significant underlying reason for why the restlessness is there. And restlessness, as well as sloth and torpor, can be just resistance, just simple resistance, not wanting to be with something that's very painful. And so as soon as one recognizes that there's the underlying cause of that, then it's really helpful to gather the resources to be with the very thing that one is avoiding. So sloth and torpor, so the tilting, the nodding effect. I mean, you guys are nothing. You should hang out with some monastics. I mean, we hit the floor. (laughs) You know, so part of it is just having a sense of context and understanding, all right, so sloth and torpor, one can work with it by opening the eyes, by looking at the light, by looking up. One can pull one's earlobes so that one's stimulating parts of the energy parts of the body. Um, One can put cold water on the face. One can go outside in the fresh air, walk backwards. You know, see, these are all kinds of strategies to kind of counteract the the kind of lull of energy. You know, we've been, some of us have been working with Qigong. And, you know, when I first started that, I always, I was always amazed because I, it took me, well, it's taken me about 20 years to work out how much food that I need at the mealtime. <laughs> and so before that, usually what happened after the mealtime was I felt like a beached whale, you know. And so I, I was just absolutely kind of like a dead thing, you know, that had just been beached up on the... Um, and and so, but what I found was is that the qigong exercises really helped to um, work with the energy and let things move in a way, where I was surprised at how quickly it could change things. So understanding one's own energies and understanding energy systems and how they work and how they move is helpful to help this stuff shift. So standing or standing like the tree, the dynamic posture, that's helpful in helping kind of stir up the energy and. And, and let it shift. But as I was saying in the beginning when I was talking about the eight precepts and the relationship with sleep, you know, again, what's really needed is a lot of discernment and a lot of, a lot of care and kindness. Because sometimes the sloth and torpor is coming because we're sick and actually we need rest. You know, sometimes it's coming because, you know, either we're eating too much food or we're reacting to the food that we're eating, you know. So if we're eating too much food, it means less food would be a way to have more energy. But if we're reacting to the food that we're eating, then we need to be discerning as to what those foods are and avoid them. Sometimes it's the weather. You know, when the, when the, just before a storm comes, sometimes the pressure does weird things and, you know, an energy system can just drop out. And sometimes it's escape, you know. So the nodding is, again, it's like, I just don't want to be here. You know, and this drug is legal on the eight precepts. <laughs> so a discernment is needed to be able to figure out, well, all right, so sleep is sleep, but it's not. You know, sleep is sleep, but it comes from all kinds of different reasons. 
And so what's needed is the kind of inquiry, self-knowledge, to begin to figure out, well, what's the right response here? So if you're exhausted, it's not going to help if you pull your earlobes and walk backwards and wash your face with water. You know, if you're actually sick, you need to sleep, you know. So the sooner we can twig as to what's actually going on, then the more appropriate our response is, and then we get less exasperated with our own process. Because if we completely wear ourselves out, then it takes a while longer to get our resources back. So in terms of the seven factors of enlightenment, investigation of dhammas and energy are really helpful. And concentration and equanimity are not. So again, you know, one of the things that one can do when one's feeling really tired is just crank up the interest. You know, really see, well, what's happening? You know. So doubt. Now doubt, this kind of doubt is not, um, you know, whether I should have orange juice or apple juice or how many pieces of bread should I have at breakfast. This kind of a doubt is is doubt about... um, practice, doubt about oneself, self-doubt. You know, these are, these are not the practical kinds of things that one needs to sort out. These are the deeper questions that we have. But it also points to two things. One is, is you know, have you ever seen or heard of Stephen Batchelor's book, The Faith to Doubt? It's actually a very lovely book. And it ties in also with the Kalama Sutta, which is one of the Buddha's you know, uh, it's almost like it's known as the Buddha's charter on free inquiry. So this is this has to do with the fact that, you know, he was speaking to a group of people called the Kalamas. And this group of people, there were all these teachers and they were saying all these things and they didn't have a clue who they should believe and who to follow and, and, and how to go about figuring it out. So in that context, the Buddha was saying, because none of these people were his disciples, they were saying, he was saying to them, don't go by scripture, don't go by report, don't go by hearsay, don't go because somebody tells you it's good, go by your own direct experience. When you yourselves know that this is the way that leads to freedom, that it leads to the end of suffering, that is what you trust. And so, you know, in some ways, you know, this whole principle of doubt is a really interesting one, particularly in our contemporary society where there's so much lack of confidence and faith in, in, in teachers and religious institutions and government. And, I mean, it's just like all over the place. And so it's like, well, you know, how do we navigate this in a way which is actually attentive to our own internal process but we're not throwing the baby out with the bathwater. We're not throwing out teachings that are liberating just because they were given by a teacher. <laughs> and teachers ultimately by their own nature have to be bad because they're part of the other thing which is bad, you know. So what's needed is a lot of discernment to figure out, well, what's right, what's not right, and how do we navigate this, particularly in our day and time where so much is changing and there's a whole lot of stuff that's happening which is really rather uninspiring, you know. It's really rather uninspiring. So the ability to discern oneself is an important principle and that's really important to know that the kind of basis is is, is that, you know, what is working, what you know for yourself, that's kind of like the bottom line thing to rely on. 
you know. And then from that, one can find groups or teachers or uh, whatever that have a resonance with your values sufficiently that you feel enough confidence to engage with to allow the kind of spiritual friendships to emerge from that. But doubt is not something that usually can be resolved with thought. And so what is needed is rather than try and figure doubt out with more thought is to try another place or bring one's attention to another area of how one can figure it out. Now, this kind of doubt is is a little bit different than self-doubt, you know. And self-doubt is endemic in our societies, along with self-hatred. And I'm going to talk about them a little bit later. Yeah. So these are the five classic hindrances, and hopefully that gives you some perspective on how to work with them. There's also, you know, so we can do this stuff, and we can be applying all these things, and all of it, and, and they can still be coming back. And so it's like, well, what happens when we have obsessive thoughts around desire or obsessive thoughts around anger or obsessive thoughts around um, that you know that are that are somehow just constantly coming back and so we've done all of those other things and then what else can we do well there's a there's a lovely sutta in the Majjhima Nikaya sutta number 20 and I've forgotten the name of it I can look it up for you if you wanted and it talks about the five specific things to do with reoccurring thoughts and one of them is um, to replace the, the thought you have with another thought. So every time you get this loop, when you notice the loop, then to move it to another, another pattern. Another way of working with obsessive thinking is to just recognize the disadvantage of doing that. You know, aside from the fact that it can give you a migraine, keep you up at night and make you feel anxious... You know, indulging in thinking like that usually doesn't have any constructive outcome. It doesn't help in any way. So when one begins to see that it's not useful, then it can help bring vigilance to not allowing it to loop. Ignoring it, just absolutely not putting attention there, is helpful. Um... looking at the source of where the thought has originated from and trying to figure out how one can release or remove that. And then the last one is, is just with willpower. You know, and the example is, is like crushing your, your, your jaw and pressing your mouth and absolutely refusing to go there. Like, no way. No. You know? So these are classical, um, classical ways which are described in the sutta about how to deal with obsessive thought. But in my sense, my, my own personal experience and what I've seen happening with other people is, is, is that this also is not sufficient list to help with some of the obsessive kind of thinking that we get in the kind of loops. And so one of the things that has been coming through in the teachings that I've already shared is the usefulness of changing a frame of reference. So if we have a a loop that's coming through thought, then if we change it to the quality of pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral, 
If we change it to what's the emotion behind it, if we change it to where are we experiencing it in our body, sometimes that can give us some leverage on the stuff that just is just incessant. Another thing that can happen is there can just be genuinely a, a, a something that's needing acceptance, which is coming through in a kind of particular thought pattern. And the thought pattern has underneath it something else. And we need to tune into what that other thing is and bring our attention there. Now, I've experienced, I don't know whether you have, but I've experienced where I've had stuff that happens to me and five years later I was still angry about it. Six years later, seven years, eight years later I was still angry about it. Pretty impressive. And then I realized that that actually was not the thing that I was angry about, okay? And it took a really long time to work out that that looked similar to something else that had happened that was actually much younger and much more difficult. And because this one thing looked similar, it was something I could not let go of. But it actually was not the reason why I couldn't let go. And so that kind of self-knowledge and self-inquiry then required that I take a much closer look at some of the stuff that happened to me when I was quite a bit younger and get a little bit more clear and conscious and uh, skilled with negotiating those kinds of things. And what I found was in doing that, that what was needed in the same way that when I recognized that I regress into the age of a two-year-old, is is that my attention is somehow split between the consciousness of that young person and the person who is uh, age-appropriate and discerning now. And so part of the skill is being able to hold one's attention in two different states of consciousness in order to negotiate these things. And then as I've been able to do that and get better at that, then there's been a a greater capacity in being able to uh, sort some of this stuff out. So the last way uh, that can be helpful with this kind of obsessive thinking is to mindfully enact, uh, you know, whatever the kind of obsessive thought is. And so I told you about the fantasy that can happen with the person on a retreat that they can fall in love with somebody else on the retreat. Well, one, one year that happened, and, and the man who this happened to, he was suffering rather a bad case of Vipassana romance and was absolutely obsessed with this idea that there was this person on the retreat that he was infatuated with. And he tried everything he could, and in the end he just gave into it and let it run. So he went through the whole fantasy of after the retreat talking and getting together and having a romantic time together and then they eventually decided that they were going to get married and they got married. They had a lovely wedding and they had children and they had a nice house and they lived together and then after a while they realized it wasn't working so well and so they decided they needed to get divorced and they split up the house and they broke up the family and then they lived their own ways and by the time he finished with all of this, When the retreat finished, he didn't even want to talk to her. (laughs) So again, one needs to be a little bit 
careful the way in which one's letting these things run, you know? Because, like, you know, there's some, there's some traditions that encourage letting this stuff run in a way that in the Theravadan tradition just simply wouldn't wash, you know? <laughs> so one needs to have uh, skillful boundaries. But there are times when just letting it run its course, it will sort itself out, and then one comes to a natural place of ending with it. So, you know, I guess the last thing that I just want to say is, is, is that, you know, the, the challenge of our practice is also our opportunity, you know. The things that we find so difficult are often the places where we find our greatest strengths. And as each of us opens in our practice in this kind of a way, and we open up to stuff that, you know, on some level, you know... I've lots of times wished I had a magic wand and COVID, you know, and it just disappears. But it's it's it has been the the stuff that has has shown me strengths that I didn't know that I had, and has given me access to um, resources and depths that I didn't know that I had. Now I just want to talk a little bit more about this whole process of working with self-hatred and self-doubt, you know, the way those two things loop together. Because again, that's endemic with so many people. It's tragic, but it's true. And for me, you know, with that, those two, I've had to um, work with it at both ends. On one hand, I've had to be careful to, to do things that bring a sense of self-respect, and also, so things like generosity and precepts and practice and, you know, staying in contact with community who are able to mirror for me my own goodness because there are times when I don't see it myself. So that's been one side of it. But the other side of it, and I think for me that's where some of the biggest shifts have taken place, is, is that when the mind opens and really understands the essence of mind, when the light is seen clearly for what it is, it dispels the darkness. So whatever, however, whatever mechanisms were that this stuff got ingrained or conditioned, when we genuinely understand what our true nature is, not as a concept, but as a direct experience, when we see what's left when everything falls away, that light of what we experience has the capacity of vanquishing that kind of ingrained, deep stuff. And that's one of the reasons why the practice is so remarkable, because it has that ability. So I just want to close with um, expressions of appreciation for everyone's diligence and commitment and hard work and you know I'm sitting here with you I know what it's like you know I really do and I just um, hope that as you're practicing what you're experiencing is is the space is opening up where there's more resource and ability to handle what is arising as well as more space just to relax and feel peaceful So I think I'll leave it for there this evening.
Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.